Hello, I'm Alec and this is Scandal 101. Happy Friday, if you are listening on the day this comes out. This week, okay, this week has been weird for me because I've had the urge in my front teeth, like, when you want to bite down on plastic, like, that kind of pressure feel. Like, my teeth don't hurt, it's just a weird pressure that I have the urge to, like, (laughs) chew on something. (sighs) I need to go to the dentist soon. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Scandal 101. I have a midterm (laughs) coming up tomorrow on Saturday. So other than a scandal update, we are just going to jump right into it. In terms of scandals I've seen in the news recently, I saw that with the college admissions scandal, there was a sentence passed down for 15 months, which is the longest sentence that was has been passed down so far in that whole ordeal. So Even though that's not a new scandal, that's news talking about updating a scandal that happened in the past. Uh, that's really all I've seen in the news. There's still the Olympic doping scandal. I haven't looked too much into that. But other than that, I think that's really all I've seen. This episode is one that is not something that at first may seem like a scandal, but it has scandal implications, possibly. And it's also kind of a mix of true crime, so that's always interesting to listen to. You saw the title when you clicked on this, but this is The Mysterious Disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi. To start off, I'm going to tell you where I got my sources so we can just knock that out of the way. I read a Crux Now article by E. Allen, a Insider article by A. Coleman, a Projects article by S. Contenta, an NBC article by A. Jamison and C. Lavanga. A really interesting and well done article slash page from allthatsinteresting.com by M. Margentinoff. I read a, a Guardian article by A. Gifurita and H. Sherwood, and then of course Wikipedia for some background information, so I used two of those articles. Okay, so this story is one that you may have heard of if you're super duper into true crime, and if you're not, it's definitely one that I think you'll remember <laughs> after this episode because it's so intriguing and at the same time kind of unsatisfying. This story is about Emanuela Orlandi and about her disappearance. So let's get to know her before we talk about her mysterious disappearance. Emanuela was the fourth of five kids and her parents' names are were Urkel and Rhea Orlandi. She was born in, and at the time of her disappearance, she lived in Vatican City. So she was born and raised there. And a little bit about Vatican City, I feel like a lot of people have heard of Vatican City or they've heard of the Vatican, but Vatican City is where this takes place and it's important to know what it is and what it's like. So Vatican City, it's its own independent state located within Rome. It's also the smallest independent state in the world. It is under the quote, full ownership, exclusive domain, and sovereign authority and jurisdiction of the Holy See, end quote. And Holy See is 
S-E-E, not S-E-A, and the Holy See is the jurisdiction of the Pope. So basically, what's happening here is it's an independent state run by the Pope, and you're probably aware the Pope is also the head of the Catholic Church. So this independent state is basically like, Catholic Church, yeah, (laughs) and the Pope is the head. And he's kind of like the president or whatever. Like he's the leader of the country. He's the leader of Vatican City. But Vatican City is small. The government of Vatican City, it's a unitary Christian absolute monarchy. It was established in 1929. And it's small, like I said. As of 2019, it had 875 people living there. So while it's its own state and people do live there, it's small and it's located within Rome. And the reason why I emphasize why it's small is because generally in small towns, especially towns, states of 875, people kind of know each other, they know what's going on. Granted, Vatican City is located within Rome, so it's a big area, but the actual state of Vatican City is pretty small. So that's just some brief information about where we are. We're in Vatican City, basically in Rome, but Vatican City is its own cool thing, doing its own thing, vibing. So going back to Emanuela and her family, in some sources, it kind of varies on what her father did, but he worked for the Vatican, but more of them say he worked as a Vatican clerk where he organized papal audiences. And presumably, if you live in Vatican City, I mean, there are other things there, people live there, so (laughs) there are other businesses and things that need to be attended to, but I would assume that a good chunk of people who live in Vatican City have some connection to the Vatican because... The Vatican is huge, and it's everything in Vatican City. Emanuela's disappearance, this this whole day, these events, they all take place on June 22nd, 1983. Emanuela at this time, she was in her second year of high school, but it was summer, so yay no school. Even though it was summer vacation, Emanuela was doing something pretty awesome, and she was doing something that most people would consider pretty cool. She was taking flute lessons, (laughs) and I said that obviously sarcastically. I honestly find it cool. I was a big band person in middle school throughout my college undergrad career. I did marching band, concert band, jazz band, drum major. I did it all. I love that she was playing the flute, and she was also in choir. So she was definitely someone who, who was musically inclined. She took her flute lessons three times per week. Musically talented, musically inclined, and serious about her music. Normally, to get from her house to the place where she took music lessons, which was at the Tommaso Ludovico da Victoria School, and it was connected to the Pontifical Institute of Sacred Music, she would normally take the bus to get there. And unfortunately, on this day, June 22nd, 1983, she was running a little late for whatever reason. Maybe she couldn't find her flute, maybe she was working on stuff at the house, who knows. But she was running late on this day, and because of this, she asked her brother, Pietro, to ride on the bus to class with her. She was just like, hey, will you ride the bus with me to class? I'm running late, it's a short bus ride, whatever. And talking about how short this bus ride was, it was only about a mile. It wasn't very far at all, even though it wasn't far. And even though she had asked him to go on the bus, as as it always seems to be in these types of stories, he didn't go with her on the bus. He said about this looking back, quote, it's a very painful memory. She insisted I take her and we rode, which means argued about it. 
Then she left, slamming the door. I never thought it would be the last time I saw her. I've gone over it so many times, telling myself if I had only accompanied her, maybe it wouldn't have happened. End quote. Obviously, it's not his fault that this happened, but just the guilt that he must feel is probably crushing because he looks back and thinks, maybe if I wasn't gone, I would have, could have prevented this from happening. Ugh, this is a horrible situation to be in. So normally what would happen after she got on this bus is she would ride the bus for a few stops and then after getting off the bus, she would walk around 590 to 690 feet or 180 to 210 meters. Not very far after getting off this bus, it was only about 600 feet and just in case you have trouble visualizing feet, sometimes I do, it's about one and a half to two American football fields. And then also I just want to reemphasize that it's a small town, like small state, kind of, like it's within or near Rome, but I would assume that it was a safe area. It's, she kind of probably knows everyone. It's this area that she's familiar with and it's also not that far. When she gets off the bus, she makes it to class, no problem. After the class, she calls home and she talks to one of her sisters. Emanuela tells her sister that she's going to be running late because she had received a job offer from a representative of Avon Cosmetics. <laughs> and this was obviously way before the day of LinkedIn and Glassdoor, but it's crazy to think that back in those days, people could just walk up to you and be like, hey kid, do you want a job? And the job was apparently going to be help uh, to help pass out flyers for Avon Cosmetics. And when she was talking to her sister on the phone about it, her sister was like, yeah, you should probably wait and talk to our parents about it. And so they talked on the phone and allegedly what had happened is she met this rep before the music lessons, but after the music lessons is when she called her sister. So she called her sister after the class, but she also talked to one of her friends about the job. And from what has been gathered, she apparently went to the bus stop with her friend and Emanuela left her friend and another girl at the bus stop and the last reported sighting of her was her, Emanuela, allegedly getting into a large, dark BMW. So she's allegedly seen getting into this vehicle and this I think comes out later, but when she doesn't return home, obviously her parents are worried. She is not someone who is just gonna kind of no-show. She's not someone who's just gonna kind of ditch her responsibilities. The next day, her parents call the music school and they ask to see if any of them at the school or if any of Emanuela's friends might have information about where she could be. Unfortunately, as most cases were, treated in the 1980s when the police were contacted the police suggested they wait because quote perhaps the girl was with friends end quote and so many podcasts talk about that but about this but it's like it would be so much better to overreact and freak out about your kid missing and then best case scenario they're at their friend's house and it's like oh sorry i forgot to call home it's like okay wouldn't you rather have <laughs> your police power making sure that the kid is safe, be proactive and not reactive. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. That wasn't common at the times. It's a lot better now. But the police were like, yeah, you should just wait because maybe she's with friends. And I don't know the exact timeline that happened, but apparently the police were convinced because later that day she was officially declared a missing person. 
It took about a day from the time she disappeared or was last seen to the time she was declared a missing person. And luckily, it wasn't a waiting period that we sometimes hear about, about 48, even 72 hours. And her brother Pietro said about this that, quote, from that day, my family entered into this nightmare, end quote. When this happens, I can't even imagine what goes through a family's mind. You want to imagine that they are okay, and I feel like in some cases you kind of hope that they ran away because then they left voluntarily, and in theory they're in control of their situation. But Emanuela's family wasn't only like, yeah, that doesn't seem likely. They were like, hell no, she did not run away. She's not that type of person. And it was said about her that, quote, She was so serene, she had something planned with her sister and had music recitals a few days later. End quote. So, (laughs) she had these things planned. She loved music. She was excited. She had these music recitals coming up. Uh, It didn't make sense for her to just run away with no word, with no, with presumably no reason as to why she would have run away. It's not like this at least from what everyone has gathered over these past 30 years, 40 years, nothing traumatic, nothing out of the ordinary happened. So there was no reason why she would have run away. So her family's like, nope, we're not buying it. We don't think she ran away. Yes, she's a missing person, but we don't think she ran away. After she was declared a missing person, there were announcements made, there were flyers made, and I don't know why this was the case, but the family's personal phone number was put in the announcements. I can't even <laughs> imagine how many, like, why didn't you set up a hotline? Why didn't you put the police department's number up? Whatever, different time, different country, but their phone number was put up. Two days after the disappearance, the family got a call from someone claiming to be a 16-year-old saying that they had met Emanuela and mentioned details about her hair, her flute, and other details that seemed to be real and seemed to be like, well, they probably wouldn't know this if they didn't actually see her. So that kind of got some attention. And then not only did this person who claimed to be the 16-year-old know details about Emanuela, The person said that she had run away, she had introduced herself as Barbarella, not Emanuela, but the Ella part, kind of similar, and said that she had run away from home and that she was selling Avon products. It was, it's like very clear that she was offered this Avon products job and this person's calling in being like, yeah, I know who she is. She introduced herself with a fake name, but she said she was selling Avon products. At this point, like that kind of seems like, okay, maybe she did run away. Three days later, so this is now six days after her disappearance, the family got another call from someone who called himself Mario who owned a bar between the Vatican and her music school. He had called to say that a girl who introduced herself as Barbara had told him something about being a fugitive and that she would return home for her sister's wedding. And other than that, there weren't that many details provided, so these two calls happened and then there's kind of silence for a couple of days. And at this point, by June 30th, Rome had over 3,000 missing person photos and posters with Emanuela's face plastered all over them. So these two calls happen, but nothing really comes of them. What happens next in this story is weird. (laughs) And this is kind of why, this is one of the reasons why I chose to do this episode is because this is introducing where scandals may come in. 
On July 3rd, Pope John Paul II, during the Angelus, which is a Catholic devotion commemorating the Incarnation, he publicly appealed for those responsible for Emanuela's disappearance to, like, help or to give her back or to come forward. And this was the first time it was publicly made a theory that kidnapping could have happened. Her family, they felt like she wouldn't run away, but this was the first time that anyone was like, yeah, hey kidnappers or hey people who took her, please come forward. It Not only is this the first time that this is coming out, but it's coming from the Pope. Yes, the Pope is the head of the Vatican City, but why is he the one first announcing publicly that this was a kidnapping that she had been taken? Why weren't the police making this announcement? Why wasn't the family informed of this? Why is the Pope publicly announcing this as the first time this has been established? Weird. Two days later after this announcement, Emanuela's family starts to get anonymous phone calls because remember, their number has been published with all of these announcements. One of these calls was apparently from a terrorist group asking for the release of Mehet Ali Agka, which he had shot Pope John Paul II back in 1981. Another call came in from someone who was identified as quote-unquote the American because of his accent. When he called, he apparently played a recording of Emanuela's voice over the phone. The Vatican, a few hours later, got a call from the same person who, again, wanted an exchange of Mehet Ali Agka for Emanuela. This person also mentioned Mario in the first phone call, saying that they were all members of this organization. So they're calling, they're like, hey, we want you to release this person who shot the Pope and Pope John Paul II, he survived the shooting but the shooter was caught and he was in jail. So they're like, hey, we want this guy released and we'll give you back Emanuela. On July 6th, so just a couple days later, someone with an American accent told ANSA news agency about the demand of Mehet Ali Agka for Emanuela, and they said that there would be a basket placed near the parliament and that it would contain proof that they had Emanuela. Because at this point, it's like, okay, now that the Pope has publicly announced it, of course, I don't understand why people do this, but of course, people are going to do hoax calls. People are going to waste their time and give people hope. But this person called and was like, no, I'm going to put this box in this square and there's going to be proof that Emanuela is with us and that we have her. So the basket is placed and it was said that the basket was containing photocopies of her music school ID, it contained a receipt and an apparent note written by Emanuela, but the person who was overseeing Emanuela's case didn't believe that these things, that this basket was legit, and so that kind of ends whatever that lead was. On July 8th, a man with an alleged Middle Eastern accent called one of Emanuela's classmates, and they said that they had 20 days to make the exchange of Mahet with Emanuela. So now, these <laughs> her friends are getting these calls and are like, listen, you've got this certain amount of time, we want this trade to happen, you have 20 days, Mahet for Emanuela. And also, during this call with a friend, the man asked for a direct line with the Secretary of State, after this line was established, there were 16 calls 
from quote-unquote the American person that were made from different public telephone booths through this direct line. But as far as I could find, there was really no way to track it and they didn't find out who this person was. But it's like this one person with a Middle Eastern accent is calling saying, hey, establish this line. The line is established. And then someone with a different accent is calling this number. And both people are saying, we have Emanuela let Mehet go and we will give you Emanuela. It obviously could have just been a group wanting Mehet and they didn't have Emanuela and so they were trying to use that as leverage. They could have had Emanuela and they were being legit or it could have just been someone messed up who wanted to play a prank. Lastly, on May 14th, 2001, so we're jumping way ahead, like almost 20 years, the parish priest of the Gregory Seventh Church near the Vatican discovered a human skull of, quote, small dimensions, end quote, without a jaw, in a bag, and with an image of Padre Pio in a confessional. So you're probably like, who the heck is Padre Pio? And I was curious too. Padre Pio was a priest. He's now a saint in the Catholic Church. And even though he was a priest, a priest, and now a saint in the Catholic Church. He died in 1968, which was about 15 years before Emanuela's disappearance. So it's like, why was his picture with this skull? And is this skull Emanuela's? To this date, the bones have been identified to not be Emanuela's. So really weird that there was this bag of a skull and a picture of this old priest in a confessional, but there had no connection to Emanuela. So just another weird thing in this case, it's like, why did that happen? But it did. The frustrating part with this case is that really ends much of the solid evidence relating to her disappearance, but it's not the end of the episode because there are a lot of theories with this case, and I'm going to talk about three of them. And there are so many theories for why she disappeared. There's no way I could talk about all of them in an episode. But why I want to talk about these three is because out of the ones I saw, these are the ones that seem to have the most evidence with them and the ones that seem the most likely and they also implicate a potential scandal. (laughs) Let's get into it. First up is someone that we've already kind of talked about is the Mahet theory. And again, he was a person who tried to kill the Pope back in 1981. He claimed that Emanuela had been kidnapped by Bulgarian agents of the Grey Wolves, which was a neo-fascist youth organization. He said in an interview that Emanuela was alive and that she was living in a convent, but he then denied having direct knowledge of her fate and saying that he had made, quote, some logical deductions, end quote. That is just so, like, eerie, like, logical deductions, like, you think she's dead, or you think she's alive, or you think she escaped, like, what do you mean? He later said in a letter published in 2006 that both Emanuela and another girl named Morella Gregory, who disappeared from Rome in 1983, so the same year Emanuela disappeared, he said that they were abducted as a plan to try and release him from prison. Kind of what I alluded to earlier, but he's saying that, yep, Emanuela and this other girl named Morella, it was going to be an exchange, me for them. He then later said that both of the girls were living in a palace in Liechtenstein, random, but okay. 
He was released from prison in 2010, and after his release, he said that the Vatican organized the assassination attempt against the Pope, and he said that Emanuela was kept as a prisoner by the Vatican, and that she was kept as a nun in Central Europe where her family could see her whenever she wanted. So that kind of closes out that theory, and after hearing all that, I'm like, yeah... I was buying it at first, like maybe your organization that you were associated with could have kidnapped Emanuela and maybe another girl to try and exchange them for you. But you kept changing the details, like they're in this convent in Central Europe, now they're in this palace in Liechtenstein, and no, you didn't shoot the Pope, the Vatican organized the assassination attempt against the Pope, or like he was hired by the Vatican, I, I mean... Who knows what the Vatican does, but my opinion is his story was believable at first, but kind of after hearing it, I'm like, yeah, I don't really buy it as much. Another theory has ties to organized crime as well as ties to the Vatican itself. So this theory, it starts with a man named Enrico de, de Pedia, but... A lot of people knew him as Renatino, so that's what I'm going to call him. Renatino, he was the leader of this group called the Banda della Magliana, and they were a gang at the top of Rome's criminal world in this group. They did murder, they did kidnapping, and extortion. He was killed, uh, Renatino, he was killed in 1990 on a scooter in Rome when he was shot by rival members of his game, of his gang. And the reason why he raises a few eyebrows is because in 2005, there was a TV program that was covering the Emanuela case, and this TV program got a call. And the call said, quote, Go see who was buried at the crypt in St. Apollinaire Bellisca and talk about the favor that Renatino did for Cardinal Poletti at the time, end quote. St. Apollinaire was a place where burials hadn't happened for more than a century, and it was this place where all these important people were buried, and it was definitely a place where a gangster would not be expected to be buried. So why was he buried there? Why, after a century of no burials, was he, a gangster, ahead of this criminal organization, buried there? A parish priest had met with Renatino while he was alive and when Renatino was an inmate in prison, and Renatino had apparently quote-unquote generously helped the poor and become a benefactor of the St. Apollinaire Basilica, which I think I said that wrong earlier, but it's Basilica, which was said in the burial request that was sent up to Cardinal Ugo Poletti, who at the time was the Vicar General of Rome. So what I gather from this is basically this priest met with him. He apparently did all this good. He sent a bur burial request up to Cardinal Ugo Poletti and it was granted. It was said that he could be buried there. So he was. This place that he was buried, it was a place where burials hadn't happened in over a century. And it was also in the church attached to the building where Emanuela had studied music. Pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> Yeah, so it was attached to the church where Emanuela had studied music. If that's not a weird enough connection, it was believed that Renatino's gang was laundering money through the Banco Ambrosiano, which is a bank that is closely tied to the Vatican's bank. The bank had apparently lent $1.3 billion to various shell companies that were owned by, guess who, the Vatican Bank, 
and there was murder involved when trying to settle those accounts. The president of Banco Ambrosiano, his name was Roberto Calvi, and he was eventually found hanging from London's Blackfriars Bridge with bricks and thousands in cash placed in his pocket. Calvi, the person who was found hanging from the bridge, he had close ties to the Vatican and was called, quote, God's banker, end quote. So this gang that had run money through the bank, and again, this is Renatino's gang called Banda della Magliana, they were also said to have close ties to people within the Vatican Bank. Tying all of this back to Emanuela, it was said that Renatino's gang had lent around $24 million to the Vatican, and they didn't get their money back, so Emanuela was kidnapped to blackmail the Vatican. And remember... The Vatican is obviously this church, but Vatican City, it's this huge thing. So if it's true that this gang lent the Vatican money and the Vatican never paid them back, I mean, it's horrible, but it makes sense that they would think to kidnap a Vatican citizen to then extort for money. On top of this, in 1984, the year after Emanuela was kidnapped, the Vatican paid back $244 million to Ambrosiana, which is the bank. The gang said that they didn't get their money back, but they apparently had struck a deal with the Vatican that ended matters. So it's like, what? <laughs> How do you... I, in my mind, if you strike a deal and you didn't get your money back... If it's true that you kidnapped Emanuela, in my mind, that means that Emanuela is no longer in play, aka maybe she is dead. And this didn't seem too far off because on top of all of this, this crazy gang bank money Vatican theory that we've talked about, Renatino's girlfriend, and again, Renatino is a person who was buried in the church by the music school, it was said that she had seen Emanuela held hostage by the gang for several months. She also said that she saw Emanuela's lifeless body in a sack before it was put into a cement concrete mixer for a construction site on the seaside town south of Rome. But the problem with this is I'm pretty sure the construction site was like built or was finished before Emanuela's disappearance, so that wouldn't have been possible. She also had these weird claims that couldn't have been true. Like, for example, she claimed to have seen a body of a boy, but the boy was alive for a whole other decade before the boy had passed away. So she's like, I saw this boy's dead body. And the boy's like, yeah, I'm right here. I'm alive and I'm not dead. So what are you talking about? So while there are some doubts with her claims, she does have things that seem legit and actually prove to be true. She, she had said that Emanuela was held in a grotto below an apartment in Rome. And after saying this, authorities investigated and they discovered the apartment above the grotto that she was talking about had belonged to people who were in the gang. And in the grotto, they found a piece of steel that likely belonged to a chain and it was likely a place where kidnapping victims were kept. So authorities are like, okay, you said this place existed. It existed. There's this weird, creepy grotto. And in the grotto there's this piece of probably chain where kidnapping victims were held. Even though they had this piece of steel, unfortunately, they weren't able to test it for DNA. So while it's creepy and it's weird, they couldn't really get anything of use off of it. 
Another significant reason why the burial of Renatino is so important and catches so many people's attention is because of what was said to be inside the tomb. Since the anonymous call came into the show saying to look into it, they were like, we need to look in his tomb because this whole ordeal is being big and we should look into the tomb. And eventually pressure was put on the Vatican and they were like, okay, we will open up his tomb. In 2012, they opened up his tomb and inside they found just Renantino's bones, just his remains. They tested other skeletons in the crypt um, that could have been around the age that Emanuela was when she disappeared, like her description or height, but none of the DNA matched, so none of the bones in that crypt were Emanuela. Okay, so that wraps up the second theory, and it's definitely, to me, more believable than the first one, but this third theory involves the Vatican itself, and this one, in my opinion, also holds some pretty good weight. Around the same time that Renantino's tomb was searched in 2012, there was an 85-year-old exorcist named Father Gabriel M. Amorth. He said that Emanuela was kidnapped by a member of the Vatican police for sex parties, and then she was murdered. The father who came forth with this was appointed by Pope John Paul II and the Pope who was there when Emanuela went missing. He said, quote, This was a crime with a sexual motive. Parties were organized with a Vatican gendarme acting as the recruiter of the girls. The network involved diplomatic personnel from a foreign embassy to the Holy See. I believe Emanuela ended up as a victim of this circle. End quote. So those theories, they've been around, and that doesn't really conclude the Vatican scandal, but those theories and so many more are still around. But what happened in 2019 is something that got the attention of many. A lawyer for Emanuela's family got a note that said, quote, look to where the angel is pointing, end quote. And there was a photo attached with a letter, and the photo was of a tomb beneath the Vatican. The angel was pointing to, toward a marble angel crypt, and again, it's inside the Vatican. So <laughs> what does this letter mean? This letter was looked into, and the crypt was like kind of like the logs were looked into and it was determined that since Emanuela's disappearance the crypt the tomb it had been opened at least once meaning that her remains could be inside not only was it possible for her remains to be inside but there were flowers that had been left at the site from unidentified visitors showing that it wasn't necessary necessarily locked up tight the possibility that her bones could be in there, and the possibility that people are getting to this tomb that are unauthorized, so someone easily could have put her bones in there. And so at this point, the only thing left to do is open it up. And luckily, they did. When they opened the tomb, they found no bodies. Obviously, it's disappointing that Emanuela's remains weren't in there, but it leaves a bigger question why were there no bodies? In the tomb, it was supposed to be the bodies of two princesses, but their remains weren't there. Instead, what authorities found were two containers that had 26 bags, and in those 26 bags were thousands of bones, likely belonging to dozens of people. 
The bones were tested and it was determined that the bones were over a century old so that it was not possible to be Emanuela, but still, where did the bodies of the princesses go? And where did this bag of bones come from? The last thing I'll say on this case, and it kind of points to the Vatican scandal being maybe the legit option, is in 2013, Pietro, who again is Emanuela's brother, he asked Pope Francis for help. The Pope shook Emanuela's mother's hand and said, quote, Emanuela is in heaven, end quote. Pietro responded with, quote, Until there is proof to the contrary, I live and hope that she is alive, and I hope that you will help me find the truth. And in response, Pope Francis said, quote, She's in heaven, end quote. And that concludes the mysterious disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi. <laughs> oh my gosh, okay. That episode, it's so satisfying but yet unsatisfying because there are so many options about her disappearance that seem legit but also maybe none of them are right maybe she did run away and she's living somewhere that she just wants to but her family doesn't buy it and i mean just from what i learned about her in research it doesn't seem like there was anything that would have caused her to want to run away and to never talk to her family again and then on top of it the weirdly eerie thing that pope francis said of she's in heaven multiple times kind of to me and to many people implies that oh shit the catholic church knows what happened and they're <laughs> they're just chilling with it maybe you know, maybe they didn't kill her, but maybe they were involved in her kidnapping. Maybe they hired people for her kidnapping. Maybe the Vatican had nothing to do with it at all. Maybe it really was um, the person who shot at the Pope and his group kidnapped Emanuela. Who knows? Or maybe it was just some random person in Vatican City, random person in Rome, Maybe a random passerby who just tricked her, grabbed her up, and it has no connection to any of these people. Those things are fun to think about, like all these theories, because you can dive down so many rabbit holes. But at the same time, at the end of the day, you're left with no answers and no really solid proof after she was last seen. And obviously, I hope that her brother gets answers. Her father passed away in 2004, not knowing what happened to his daughter. And I couldn't really find if uh, her mother was still alive or not. But her brother is fighting for answers. And there were articles as recent as last summer, summer 2021, where he was talking and was like, we need answers because she's the only person in Vatican City to ever be kidnapped. So... I mean, not only is someone being kidnapped significant, but she is the only person in Vatican City history to be kidnapped from some of the sources that I read. So this is a big deal. And a lot of people know about this case, but yet there are no answers and it's frustrating. Okay, now it is time for a personal scandal. I had asked for what is something in your town that someone got away with, but, and everyone knows it, but they just got away with it. So this person said, we had a long running mayor who was also one of the biggest drunks in town. I can't count the number of times she was in the local news for drunk driving and yet she got away with it every fucking time. 
listen. That's so frustrating when people in power get away with stuff like that because, I, you know, if she's the mayor, maybe she had the police on lockdown. She was like, hey, homies, can you just let me off this time? Who knows? That's just me speculating. It's so frustrating when people in power get away with things like that, like drunk driving. That's dangerous. And she according to this person, never got punished, but other people get punished all the time for it, so why didn't she? Presumably because she was in power. (sighs) That's frustrating. Alrighty, on that note, that concludes this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Before I dive into the social media and stuff, I created a TikTok (laughs) for the Scandal 101 podcast. I just post little clips of episodes and maybe I'll post more content going forward, but I'm going to catch up to the episode that we're on. I'm posting one per day, so it'll take like 35 more days and then I'll maybe post more content. But if you want to go check it out, that is at Scandal 101 Podcast on TikTok. And then for the other social media pages, if you want to see pictures related to this case on Instagram at Scandal 101 Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal 101 Pod, on Facebook, search Scandal 101 Podcast, you'll find us there. The website is Scandal101Podcast.podbean.com. You can find the sources that I use for this episode there. And as always, they are linked in the episode description. And if you want to send in your personal scandal to have it read on the podcast, please uh, email that in to scandal101podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you have a good rest of your however much you have left in your day. I have a midterm tomorrow, so wish me luck. This has been episode 40 of Scandal 101.